who are you referring to, you know, and uh, with the whole Balagui situation and all what's going on. But uh, well, that wasn't but... what I was referring to, but it just worked. Ah, okay, so there's a couple, there's a couple yeah, people yeah, can yeah. connect to, but yeah, sorry, continue. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Carson Daily Show, the crypto culture talk show that nobody asked for. I am here today with Omri. Um, Omri is a lawyer based in London, specializing in blockchain, NFTs, and Web3 by day, and a DGen by night. Over the past four years, Omri has worked with some of the most prominent projects in the blockchain and Web3 space. He's also an advisor for the UK's largest NFT-dedicated community, NFT UK. He also has a phenomenal newsletter titled Not Legal Advice, which we are definitely going to talk about loads in this show. Omri, welcome. So nice to see you. Thank you very much for having me, Carson. Great to be here. Really great. Thank it's you. It's so great. Um, I think that this is like a really important episode to have, like even in my own, like how I do my podcast episode prep is like I listen to other people's podcasts because as we know, great artists steal. Um, and even just like typing in on Spotify or Apple podcasts, like NFT legal or like crypto law or IP rights, like you don't get a ton of results. And even the ones that you do get tend to be like, still making the assumption that you know like what you're talking about at least loosely going into it. So, I think like for the purposes of the episode and for this, you know, that I'm hoping that I have a listener base that is beginner, um all seven of my listeners definitely do come from the crypto space, but on the <laughs> off chance we get some new <laughs> on the off chance that we get some new people this week, I wanted to just ask you if you could like just quickly um, define like what is an NFT, what's Web3 and crypto? Like I know those are big loaded questions, but just like the simplest, the simplest um, definition that you can give. Sure. So um, I think, first of all, I agree with you <clears throat> in terms of, you know, there are a lot of assumptions. And to be honest, when I started to, you know, go around and talk about NFTs and I assumed you know, quite a lot. I assumed that people understood what NFT was, but I, I also assumed that people understood what intellectual property was. And we'll talk about that later. But for now, in terms of, you know, what is an NFT, I almost see it um, as a Canva. So you, you can think about, you know, when you're drawing a painting, you're drawing it on a Canva. And when you are using an NFT to distribute uh, your art or otherwise, you know, a piece of content, what you're doing is you're taking a token which doesn't say much but let's say a unique piece of digital information that is recorded on the blockchain and for all intent and purposes you know the blockchain is a database uh, i remember when i started getting into the space and i would speak with you know at the time it was mainly people just focused on crypto nft wasn't big yet and they would tell you oh it's a decentralized network and it's uh you know distributed uh, say immutable and i was like oh my god what is that <laughs> so and at the end of the day what it is it's really a database but I think it's a very important database because for the first time since starting you know, our journey within the digital world, we have a database where information cannot be copied and pasted. So if you think about um, a non-fungible token, it means you know, an, a non-replicable piece of digital information. And we often refer to it as a token because when you have unique digital information, what you end up having, it's almost like you know, a, a an object, which sounds weird because you're talking about digital and we're so accustomed to being able to copy and paste digital information infinitely, but you can't do that with a token, meaning that you have this almost physical item recorded on this database. And when we talk about an NFT, we're talking about one of such items that is associated with a piece of content. So there is a token that is associated to a, you know, it can be an artwork, it can be a written piece, it can be a video, it can be really literally anything that can be recorded digitally can be associated to an, an NFT. And, you know, more more recently, we also have a term that I think is terrible, but it's digitals. So there is this <laughs> connection, you know, between uh, between digital and, and physical items. But, you know, the underlying premise is that an NFT is almost like a digital object and it's unique. And you can associate it to other form of digital content. Another misconception is that 
when we talk about NFT, we talk about an image on the blockchain, which is not the case. Uh, most of the time, because of data limitations, you don't really want to store the content itself on the blockchain because, of course, now it's better with you know Ethereum with the update that it's received, but it can be quite expensive to upload information as heavy as say an artwork or even more video or you know a podcast on the on chain, and that's you know on chain NFTs meaning that the content is stored on chain, and there are some that do that, like for example CryptoPunks, think Board Apes as well. But there are a few a few cases. But otherwise, what what happens is normally the token um, is stored on the blockchain, and the content that is associated to the token is stored elsewhere on more efficient databases uh, like IPFS, Earwave, and those are also distributed, meaning that you know it's not exactly like a centralized database where someone can just go and delete the image and that's it. You know, like uh, Amazon AWS, although some projects use it. Um, but so. To go back to your question, and I've done a terrible job explaining it, oh an, NFT is almost like, a, an NFT is almost like a cake, right? And you have two layers. One is the token layer, which is stored on the blockchain. And then on top of that, you have uh, you know, the content that sits on top of the sponge, let's say, and that is normally stored elsewhere. It's a digital item that can't be copied. The content can be copied, but the token cannot be copied. I love the cake analogy. Like that is <laughs> so good. You know what I heard recently? It was like, I don't know if you remember, but there was a trend. I want to say it was like maybe five years ago, maybe 10 years ago. I forget how old I am right now. So probably like 10 years ago. But where people were like buying stars, like you could like buy a star and you weren't really like buying yeah. the star. You were buying the naming rights to a star, which was stored on a ledger, basically, like in this star broker company's like <laughs> database. And even though like... <laughs> Sounds you, like a scam. <laughs> yeah, but it, it worked because people loved it. And like even this, the purchasing oh, yeah, of I a star was like on my like Christmas list a couple years. Like I want to say like one of those... <laughs> like love actually or he's just not that into like one of the like big rom-coms of like the 2010s like definitely captured that and made it awesome but that's basically like the cake is a great analogy the star is a great analogy like you don't actually own the art like you own the token unless is there cases like maybe this mm -hmm. is a good segue into like what do you actually collect and own when you buy purchase an nft yeah that's a great point uh, so exactly and if you look at traditional art it's the same if i go into a gallery and i buy a painting it doesn't mean that i own the rights over the painting right. itself so the intellectual property over the painting so think about it like for, for those that listen you know that are listening i think think about intellectual property as a form of property over the intangible so when you think about the house that's a real property meaning you know you can point to it you can identify it there is a register you can trade it but when you're dealing with expressions of ideas when it comes to artworks you know that's copyright that's not really because when you own a copyright you don't just own a particular copy of it you own that work right so when you create a, an artwork you own the rights to that particular work you can you own the right to, you know, reproduce it. You own the right to distribute it, to monetize it. So there is a form of intangible value that surrounds your creation, and that is protected through intellectual property. So when you buy an NFT, like you said, what you buy is the token itself, and it's not really... So going back to the cake, you're buying the sponge. You're not necessarily buying, you know, the, the top layer that can have, I don't know, cream or fruit. <laughs> but that one belongs... By, <laughs> by default, it belongs to the person that created it or otherwise the person that purchased it from the creator because you know you can commission work as well as a project for example but some you know some projects like uh, you know people within nft within the web3 space now come also with commercial rights so if you look at board ap yacht club more recently also punks and so in a similar fashion many other projects that uh, followed in the footsteps of yuga lab provide you with commercial rights over the art itself so meaning I'm buying the artwork. Normally, I do not own the intellectual property, but what I do of the content, but what I do own is a right to use that content for commercial purposes. So, for example, I can create merchandising with that particular piece of content and sell the merchandising. I can license it to 
production houses that want to create an animation, for example, using that particular character. So there are different forms of licensing. And what's interesting, I think, is that there isn't just one formula or one form of licensing that is right for all project. What's right really depends on the project itself. So if you're a fine artist, I think you want to protect the copyright and you don't necessarily want to give it away because you rely on that. If you're a one-on-one, one to you know, one-of-one artist, so you create an artwork in a more traditional sense, but you're doing it digitally, leveraging NFTs, you know, to have original. I think traditional licensing tends to work well still. Uh, if you're create if you're trying to create on the other end the brand, for example, like Bored Apes, you know, like Yuga Lab is doing, then I think it's nice to be able to incentivize your community to build that brand together with you. So suddenly we see, you know, Eminem and Snoop Dogg creating a video with their Bored Ape characters. And culturally, that is incredible because it gave a lot of exposure to, um, you know, Yuga Lab and, and to the Bored Ape project that would have been otherwise hard to achieve. Um there is also CC0, you know, a lot of time we, we hear that mixed uh, with commercial rights, but CC0 is different. It means that you're opening up the IP. Effectively, anyone can use it. Uh, in which case, you know, you don't really leverage that incentive any longer. The incentive of saying, I'm buying an NFT because I get the NFT itself, so the token, but I also get the commercial rights over the content. So I can use it commercially. And when you're talking about a brand that is as powerful as Boredate, then, you know, potentially you can do something interesting because people now recognize it in the public and so you can leverage it to create a game maybe or to create an animation or a story. But when you're dealing with CC0, you don't really get that because I don't need to buy the token in order to use those characters. Think about cryptos, for example. I can use any crypto that I want to create any animation that I want. So it's great to disseminate culture because everyone can use them and everyone can create a meme with them. Anyone can produce work with them. It's more likely to go viral if you're adopting a CC0 structure. You're losing that incentive, meaning that you know people don't have to buy it in order to to be able to do so. But then you can you can build incentives on the token layer. So meaning on the sponge layer, for example, you can have you know certain uh, redeemables, be it merchandising or access to event. You know, basically all of the utility that you can build at the token level act as an incentive as well as provenance. Because of what we said at the beginning, you know, for the first time, we can have unique digital information, meaning you have digital originals, which never existed before. You know, you're an artist. Imagine if I commissioned to you a piece before the blockchain. Sure, we have an agreement in place. And by all accounts and purposes, if I've done things right, I own that piece of art that you've created for me, you know, that I've commissioned from you. But if people copy and paste it online, they get basically the same exact artwork that I have, and I have nothing else really apart from the contract itself to prove that I am the legitimate owner of it. But thanks to NFTs now and thanks to the blockchain, if I own your original work, then that is publicly provable. You know, I own the NFT that you have issued. I own that, and so it means that I own the original work itself. I don't need to resort to the agreement itself to demonstrate that. And you can add, you know, again, you can build an incentive on the utility side, you know, on the token level. So I think I lost a bit myself in the question. but (laughs) (laughs) No, that was all great. And like your explanation just made me come up with like a million more questions, even like off of my my formal outline that I have here. And I want to go back to like the brand building incentive, because this is something that I spoke about in my last podcast episode with. Adam, who is part of the Board Ape Yacht Club community, he sees, you know, he's built a brand and, you know, leveraged his asset to to create and market a brand in in a unique way. And I just wanted to ask, like, what where does disclosure come in? Like where you're using this asset that you have, you know, the right to use because you own it or you don't own it, and you're, you know, creating something that is with the likeness of that, but you're not disclosing to the public that like it's not actually registered or is like an official collaboration or an official product of the brand Hmm. that you're using. Like where does that disclosure come in? And at what point is it like unethical really? That is a great question. When we're talking about intellectual property rights, you have different form of IPs. Right. So you have copyright, which is the expression of the idea itself. So it tends to cover, you know, work of art. 
intellectual creation, think about music, think about literary work like books, think about um, production like animation, video games. So you tend to protect the art itself. And that form of protection exists to incentivize creators to further our culture effect. So what happened is I'm providing you, as say, as the government or as a state, I'm providing you with protection, meaning that I'm giving you the only right to monetize what you create or to protect it, to forbid others from using it in order to incentivize you to create, because you can create knowing that that would belong to you for a certain period of time. So copyright acts as an incentive for cultural growth. But trademark, on the other hand, that really serves one of the pur- main purposes that it serves is to protect consumers. So it's to, for consumers to know when a product or a service originates from a source that they know. So, for example, going back to the Voridave Yacht Club, what you get, you get the copyright over the character that you own or, you know, over the character that is associated to the NFT that you own, but you do not get the right to use their trademark. And that is an important, you know, distinction. So disclosure is not necessarily required because if you're limiting your use to the ape itself, then theoretically you're not using the trademark of, of you that belongs to Yuga Lab. So I cannot sell a t-shirt using, you know, the, the skull or using, for example, their branding name because those that IP belongs to them and they do not license it to you. You can use it, you know, what you normally see, you can use it unaltered if, for example, your own ape has their own trademark. You know, the, there is the bike cap as a trade. There is also the T-shirt, for example. So you can use it unaltered, but the question is still very important because I think, you know, many people would not really know the distinction between, oh, what is a trademark? What is the copyright? Especially if they're not part of Web3 and they're not as accustomed to seeing, you know, Bordeaux wine or Bordeaux, you know, there have been many, many uses of the of, of apes in connection with different brands, then yeah, that, that is a risk 100%. However, then I would say, you know, we're almost moving, because it's the community and power of branding, what I think it's interesting is that in a way it does originate, if not from Yugalab, but from the community of Yugalab, because the only person that should be able to use it is a collector. So I think that it is a risk. I see what you mean, especially if the goods are not that great. So there is a risk also for Yugalab that that reflects poorly on them. But there is also that also forms part of the risk that they are taking to offer an incentive to their community. So, you know, it's a risk reward situation. Yeah, I loved what in um, your newsletter you had you wrote, you can't force others to use your IP. You can mm. give them permission to use it and make money from it, but they have to actually want to use it in the first place. And it made me think of like after after Board Ape Yacht Club and, you know, in the, the height of PFP, like JPEG summer, a lot of these collections and a lot of people were we're releasing collections that were going out for mints, like they haven't even minted yet. And they say like, oh, you own the IP, like that's included in this. And and it yeah. seems like that was actually, that was an incentive for people to, you know, it was a determining factor for people to mint or participate. But then now that we're talking about it, it makes me wonder, I'm like, well, why do people care? Because th- that means that if you care about it, you're making the assumption that that IP will be worth something that like that brand will have recognition and clout and power out in the real world to actually make you money. And then it just makes me feel like it's like the cart before the horse kind of scenario. Like, why do you think that the option and availability of owning IP alone is enough to convince somebody to mint when there's no promise or guarantee that that's even going to be worth anything? Yeah, you're killing it. I love these questions, by the way, honestly. <laughs> so uh, I think, no, honestly, honestly, I think Thank they're you. really good questions. So I, I think that, you know, it, it is a bit like, you know, horses and cars or chicken and eggs in a way, because there is an element of trust when you decide to buy a, an NFT on the premise that you have commercial rights over the character. But let me also put it in this way. Would you spend effort building goodwill, meaning building value into a fictional character that you use as a PFP, if you didn't know, if you didn't, if you didn't have the reassurance that if you want to commercialize it one day, then you can do so? Because I remember at the beginning when I got the punk, 
I was ecstatic and I wanted to use it everywhere. And I've even, you know, incorporated in, uh, I've contributed to the um, Law Society guide on NFTs and crypto. And I've managed to put it in there as an example. So I started to build goodwill into that punk, you know, and, um, but at the time, uh, Larva Lab, which was, you know, the original creator of CryptoPunk and, and the owner until the sale to Yuga Lab, they were not clear at all about, you know, on the terms of, of uh, surrounding punk, on the intellectual property terms. So no one really knew whether they be, whether you could use commercially punks or not. There was this, uh, you know, terms have appeared very briefly, uh, which are the same Mibits term, if I'm not mistaken, for like a day, uh, you know, on a tweet, and then it was taken down. So arguably there was up to $100,000 of commercial use, uh, you know, so there was a cap on how much you could commercially use your, your CryptoPunk, but no one was really sure. And to be honest with you, for some time, that created discomfort, not because I think I'm going to start a fashion brand, first of all, because I don't understand anything about fashion, <laughs> and second, because, uh, you know, it's not exactly what I want to do. But it did feel a little, I felt a little bit, uh, you know, I didn't feel incentivized to build goodwill because I'm like, well, I'm putting a lot of time and effort and I'm using this as the representation of my digital identity. But then ultimately, I don't know whether I'll be able to use it, say, in a book one day or in an animation. Or, and so I think that, giving commercial right is almost a must if you want people to start using it online as their own representation, as the representation of their digital identity. So it's almost like a requirement, you know? I think now you don't really need that if you say you're creating a one-of-one -one piece of art that is meant to be exhibited on the other end. So say you're you're creating those amazing AI, you know, works and do I need commercial rights? Yeah, sure, it'd be great, but I don't really need it. What I want is an original piece from the creator, from the author, you know, to be able to, to exhibit it. So the commercial right element is not really required in that case. So I think that you almost need it in order, especially PFP project, for to incentivize people to use it as their identity. And by doing that, I think what you're doing as a project, you are incentivizing people to you're incentivizing your community to give birth to community heroes or to champions of your movement. Because if you remember like a year ago, you know, all shiny and these type of people, they really championed the Bordet movement. I think Bordet became such a success because it had such a strong community behind it because people felt incentivized, you know, to, to adopt it, to create a movement, a collective movement altogether when no one really did that at the time or very few. And I think that, you know, especially when it comes to profile picture project, incentivizing the, the birth of champions within your community is paramount because you need people to run your spaces. You need people to share your, you know, to share your content, to get excited about everything. Like I remember Artifacts, for example, there was so much hype behind every, you know, drop. And to be honest with you, I still think that Artifact is doing some amazing work. And of course, they were really successful with the purchase, with the Nike acquisition. But at the same time, I feel that they've also overhyped so much all of their drops. And now I think I don't see the community as much. I see people using the PFP because, of course, it's very iconic. They have a very you know dis uh, distinctive style to it. All of the questions surrounding you know whether you, they can use them commercially or not. You know, we're still waiting from Bordet the 3D assets to be able to use them within, you know, interactive experiences or renders. But CloneX already released those, and I don't see as many uses for those as I would like to. And I think that part of it comes from from that, you know. And I have clones, so I'm not hating on the project. Uh, <laughs> don't fight Omri's bags, uh, people. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. So you know, I think that. For example, I, I, I was lucky during the minting and I got like a top 100 rarity within the Clonex um, collection I, with a Murakami trade that I absolutely love. And I would 100% use that if I knew I had the commercial right over it. But what's the point of using it for me, knowing that, you know, am I incurring problems when, at the moment that I start trying to monetize? So, you know, if you spend a lot of time building goodwill behind an image or a character, and you realize only at the time when you start to try and commercialize it, that there is a problem. Good luck starting all over again with another asset. I think, you know, there is an element to that. On mm. the note of like incurring problems, let me just throw a scenario at you. Again, mm -hmm. I'm like so far off from my outline here of like the questions I wanted to ask because this is this conversation <laughs> is sparking so much. But 
let me throw a scenario out here and ask like for your legal advice, but not legal advice. Okay. Imagine there's, I buy into a project floor is really low. It's like for all intents and purposes, this founder is maybe considered like to have rugged, you know, nobody's heard from them. Nobody, they haven't been active. They've basically disappeared. And I bought their project, which gave me IP rights. And I went out and I built a commercial brand using this, this PFP or avatar, this character to represent that. And imagine my brand completely takes off. People around the world go crazy and end up buying into this project. And their like recognition of that and their incentive to do that is because of the, you know, the, um, the cloud or, or the amplification that I've provided. Is there a world in which I am able or eligible? Do I have any right to sue the founder to say, I'm the reason that your that your floor has gone up, that you've made these like you've had this 100x secondary, you know, sale price or whatever. Like, what is what is that case study look like? <laughs> a lot of questions. So, first of all, you know, I'm not I'm not a lawyer. No, I'm kidding. I, I, I don't do litigation. So, you know, I think that's quite of a specialized area. What I would say is that, you know, based on based on what you said, it, a lot would depend on what the uh, people behind the project promised with the project itself. So, you know, when you say a rug, does it simply mean that they just stop interacting with the project? You know, as of itself, if you have a PFP and you have commercial rights, then they have their part of the bargain. You know, they don't necessarily need to continue building it. Um, so I think that's that's something to consider. In terms of what you can do if you are the reason for the success of the project, Commercially, what I think would be interesting is when you start seeing, you know, you're, you're exploding and the commercial interest is going up, then I think from a commercial, so this is not really legal. It's more about, you know, how, how I would go about it commercially. I would probably reach out to the project funders and understand if, um, they're, they'd be keen on cutting me in. So in the equity of the company that holds everything. So becoming part of the project or buy them out and. At the same time, probably also make the community aware of that, because at the end of the day, the community is very is at the key of you know is at the heart of any uh, of any success. So I think making the community participant to this conversation to apply community pressure to the original project uh, owners that are not doing anything. So I think that's probably how I would go about it. And what's interesting, one thing that I wanted to say before, I think Spotty, you know, Spotty Wi-Fi, the yeah. punk rapper. Yeah. He was um, one thing that he said once, I think, on a space, and I completely agree, agree with him. You know, it is one thing to own commercial, right? It is another, so it, it is one thing to own IP or have rights over IP and another to build value into it. You know, it goes back into you can't force others to want to buy your IP. And everyone, I remember during the PFP summer, you know, everyone was static, wanted commercial rights. But it takes so much effort to build value into a particular character. It's actually insane. And I remember when Richard uh, from Manifold was offered, I think, $11 million for his yeah. punk. And he didn't sell. You remember? I do. Yes, yeah, I do. Because of the, of the value. Was it a good choice? I don't know. But, you know, that's almost his trademark. Like, he's so tightly associated with that PFP that, you know, arguably it wasn't, it wasn't worth for him selling it, you know, regardless of everything. And now, of course, we're dealing with bear market, but it's hard to build value into 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 an asset. Look at, for example, G-Money. Arguably, is the only ape that people really recognize within the punk collection, you know, like, so what happened to the other apes? Sure, they're very valuable, but you never really see them around. You don't know who they're associated with. And so... It takes a lot of a lot of effort to build value into a piece of IP, and you can do that in different ways. You can be very, uh, you can be a highly sought participant within the Web three space, for example, or within another space. You can use the power of narrative, so you can create, you know, animations, uh, books, comic book, and so on and so forth. But basically, what I'm trying to say is that the simple fact that you own commercial right doesn't mean that they are actually valuable. Like there is a lot of effort that goes into into building it. In your um, blog, you wrote IP rights are negative rights. And I have the explanation here, which you you wrote beautifully. I, uh, but I would love for you to 
like explain what that means for people who don't get it because i had no idea and i didn't get it (laughs) of course yeah so whenever you turn the first page of any intellectual property book the first page says you know ip right or negative territorial right and you just keep it and you go to the you know to the meaty part but actually that's the most important part because it really explains to you the type of mind model um that you would need to use to be successful when you're dealing with IP. Because the fact that there are negative rights, so the difference between a negative right and a, and a positive right is a positive right entitles you, gives you the right to get something from someone. So say we have an agreement and you know we agreed for whatever reason, you need to send me 500 pound at the end of every month, okay? That is a positive right that I have because every month you need, I get something from you. And then, or, or similarly to an employee, you know, an employee under an employment contract has a right, positive right to income. So get paid salary. A negative right on the other end gives you the ability to stop others from doing something or from getting something. So for example, IP rights fall within this, uh, you know, class of, of rights. So if I am an IP owner and you want to use my IP, I have the right to stop you from doing that. So that's the premise. And, you know, the fact that you own copyright doesn't mean that you have a right to make money from it. The way that you can make money from it, it's either I sell the, you know, the, the IP to someone else. Um, similarly to, you know, I own this pen and I decide to sell it to someone else. This is my property. I sell it to someone else and I, and I get the money. Uh, or you can give people permission to use your IP. So what you're doing is you're saying, Look, I have, the, I have the right to stop you, but I'm not going to stop you in using it for these particular cases, for this period of time, in these particular territories. So I create the rules that basically govern the way that you're using the IP that belongs to me. So I'm leveraging my negative right to get a positive right, because in exchange for that, I'm going to get the license fees. And so you're going to pay me a certain amount. So that's how you leverage a negative right into making money, into a monetization vehicle. Is that, was that a bit more? Yeah, that is great. That is great. And for people who, I'm going to keep plugging your newsletter because it's so good. So for people who want to know more about that, like it is in the newsletter and it is very well written. But I want to ask, like, is it enough for me to say, this is my IP? Like, is there, you know, this show, the Carson Daly show, this is my IP? Or whatever I've made, if I color on a napkin or something like that, if I write something down, is it enough for me to say this is my IP or is there something that I have to do formally to make that true? Yeah, that's a really great question again. So I think, you know, every IP strategy has at least three stages. So you start by identifying the type of intellectual property that, you know, you could be dealing with. So first you have intangible value then. Then you look at the intangible value and you try to understand under which form of intellectual property it can fall. So you identify the, the intellectual property form. And like we said, you know, you have copyright for artistic works, you have trademarks for brands, then you have patents for inventions, you have designs, which cover, you know, the 3D, the look, the look of an item. And so you need to understand what, so an intellectual property are basically forms of protection. And you need to understand what form of protection better suits what you're trying to protect. So if you're dealing with an artwork, you know, that copyright is probably the most suitable for you. So in the UK, copyright, you have, you get copyright protection as soon as you're able to meet the criteria for protection. So meaning there has to be an intellectual creation of the mind. So, and, and it has to be original. So the threshold for copyright is relatively low. It's quite easy to get copyright protection. So you don't have to go and register a right in the UK. In the US, for example, you still have protection, but you want to register it to to get access to better remedies in court. It's a different framework, slightly different framework. But generally speaking, you know, copyright is, um, you know, arises as soon as you create a a work that is capable of, of obtaining protection. What's important with copyright, because it's so intangible and because it doesn't rely on, on registration, is to have a good paper trail. So, for example, if I'm commissioning a work to you and we agree that I own the copyright so that you assign the copyright to me, I want that to be written. I want an assignment agreement because I would be relying on that paperwork to demonstrate if it ever comes to that. If you ever challenge my my ability, you know, my ownership to it, I want to be able to prove that, to demonstrate that. So 
those are called unregistered rights, meaning they do not rely on a particular registration process. But then if you look at trademarks, you know, what we were talking about, like the logos and the brands, then that is a registered right, meaning that I would need to take my, you know, the logo or the mark that I'm seeking to protect. And then I need to go through a formal application process through the intellectual property office, you know, in the UK. And IP rights are territorial rights, meaning that you need to secure them in all territories that you're interested in. So there are different routes, you know, based on that. But just to keep it broad, you have registered right like trademarks and patents, and those require registration. So you need to go through the registration process in order to secure it. And people can resist it if, say, for example, they've used the mark that is very similar before you, you know, there are certain, or if the mark is offensive, you know, there are certain criteria. But so when it comes to trademark and patent, these are registered right. When it comes to copyright in the UK, that is unregistered, meaning it arises automatically. But it's important. So that's that's the first phase. That's identification. Then you have protection, which means you understand what you need to do in order to get protection and you make sure that you meet those that, those criteria. And then the final one is monetization, which is what we've been talking about. You know, you leverage your negative rights once that you have it in order to monetize it, to make money out of it. And you do it by, you know, licensing it to other people. And if no one is interested when when you first secure your right, then you try to build, you know, awareness into it. You try to build value into it through narrative. So if you're an artist, you know, you market yourself. You go, you show your work around, you try to network. Uh, if you are say a, a more create a project that focuses more on production you try maybe to create an animation you you come up with a story you seek funds to produce something you know there are different ways is, i'm learning so much today <laughs> it's amazing i want to because you brought it up about like us versus uk as you know i'm an american who now lives in the uk like i'm wondering i'm sure you have because you're on Twitter and you're a part of this space, like I'm sure you have mm -hmm. made friends with other like legal big brain people in America yeah. and in other places. What would you say are like other than copyright, which we just talked about, what would you say are like maybe one through three, like a couple different like major differences between like regulatory practices in the UK and the or versus the US? And that can be associated to crypto it can be associated to art period it could be mm -hmm. associated to digital ownership like broad spectrum what would you say like some of the main differences that you've picked up on would be yeah so well first of all you know i'm not qualified in the u.s so anything i say so i would say seek legal counsel yeah, in your country absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but it, so you know what i would say is that one is the way that copyright operates when it comes to claims of infringement, for example, you know, in this registration. The the second one that comes to mind is securities. So, you know, in the US, you have this Howey test that is very, very broad, potentially really, you know, most sort of offerings can almost be deemed as securities. It's extremely broad. I'm not, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> I don't really know, nor, nor do I want to pretend that I understand all of the finesse that goes into interpreting Howey, but... but <laughs> That's quite different. I think that in the UK, when it comes to security, we have, and in the EU, you know, and, and most of the UK securities law derives from EU because we used, to, before Brexit, we used to be part of the European Union. And that area of law and regulation is fairly harmonized to encourage trade. So if I have similar rules across all states, then I can be fairly confident that the states can trade, people within the states, you know, service provider can offer their services elsewhere. If it's not harmonized and everyone has, you know, its own rules, then it becomes difficult, say, for me in the UK to offer services in France because maybe in France they're regulated or not. So I would say that um, in the EU and in the UK, we tend to have a much clearer picture when it comes to securities and whether a particular token or a project falls within the definition of a security. Whereas I think in the US, it's very much higher risk. I also think that the approach of the regulator between the US and the UK is different from what I see. You know, in the UK, we use a lot of guidance paper. The regulator doesn't seem uh, as keen at this stage, you know, that can change very quickly to just enforce outright. Whereas in the US, there seems to be a lot more aggressiveness. It might also be due to the size of the market. I think that the US is just such a much bigger market and policy reason and you know cultural reasons as well but i would i would say that the level of aggressiveness of the regulator coupled with uh, really a bit the lack of clarity of what constitutes a security in the us i think that's 
that's probably a difference between here and there. And then one other aspect, and that doesn't really apply only to the US. Uh, it applies, you know, really to any any sort of state or jurisdiction you consider. And one risk that most projects completely neglect is gambling regulation. So the moment that you integrate NFTs within a video game, you know, your risk of falling within gambling regulation, you know, goes high. But, well, first of all, materializes, and second, you know, it's relatively can be relatively high depending on the game mechanics. And, you know, often people are surprised. I'm like, wait, hold on, why gambling? Like, I'm just integrating NFTs into my video games. So in-game items are NFTs. But that can create, because of how regulation is, you know, phrased, that can create um, a regulatory risk. And unlike securities in the EU, you know, or in what it was the EU, gambling regulation is very different. Each state, you know, looks at it differently. Some state, you know, loot boxes, have you ever heard of them? They're like, you know, within video games where you can buy no? no, I don't think so. So think about the video game where you buy a certain, so you, you buy bundles that can have, let's say, where you get five items, but the items that you get are randomized oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. amongst a pool of 50 items, for oh, example, yeah, yeah. different exactly. rarity. Right. So there has been a, yeah, a like lo- a blind box, exactly. like an in-game blind box. Right? Uh, exactly. That's, that's exactly, that's a loot box. Yeah. A hundred percent. So there have been, you know, jurisdiction, I've seen it differently. Some jurisdiction view those as a gambling product. Other jurisdiction, like for example, in the UK, we don't view loot boxes as a gambling product for as long as, at least based on available guidance, for as long as you cannot extract the value from the game or the item from the game. So for as long as, say, I'm opening the the chest that has the items or, you know, this bundle and the item, I can only use the, the items within the game. I cannot trade them. I cannot sell them. Then that you know, the, the sort of the underlying principle is that that right now should not be a gambling product. But if you integrate NFTs, then suddenly you can extract them from the game, you can trade them, you can sell them. Therefore, there is a higher risk for the loot box to be viewed as a gambling, you know, as a lottery. Got it. That makes sense. I think, uh, like, it, it's so confusing to me and like complex, but also interesting. Like, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not even close to being one, but I am like somebody I like like to pretend that I could be. Like I always wanted to be Elle Woods. Like ever since I saw Legally <laughs> Blonde, I thought this was possibly me. So let's present like for me, like let's present a completely hypothetical, not oh, no. related to any person whatsoever that we don't know mutually. Um if we're in the US and I'm a lawyer and I represent an, a, and I, a case comes to me with an artist who is known as a logo appropriator, like he is, he or she or they are in their brand and have built a brand around logo appropriations and maximalism and all of this. And they are sur- sued by a larger legacy company or a brand who says that they are you know, infringing on their trademark with their own artwork. My defense as a lawyer, was <laughs> not a lawyer, would be to say that this person has a proven record of using, you know, logo appropriations in their artwork and that can be proven and it wasn't done in a way to infringe on this particular trademark. That would, for me, like from what I know, very basically, that would fall under like a freedom of speech, right? Like a, a constitutional right to create art. Is there, first of all, am I wrong? Would I would I win in court if you were the judge <laughs> based on my argument? <laughs> second question is, second question is, is there anything like that in the UK? Are there protections like freedom of speech? Is there a case for that same argument in the UK that mm-hmm. holds up? This is completely hypothetical, by yeah, the way. Yeah, so uh, again, I'm not sure exactly, you know, in the US what defenses would be available to you, but uh, not really in the UK, to be honest, but I'll, I'll throw an hypothetical, like just, you know, brainstorming around it. If I saw this coming through the doors, you know, what are my first thoughts before researching or having like, you know, anything concrete? Um, so this is not advice, but what I would say is that if there is a commercial element, I think it becomes harder to, you know, argue any defense, really, because if you're monetizing someone else's property, then, you know, is it for speech or is it for use or is it, you know, one of these things, parodies often thrown around, you know, but 
I think commercial use tend to erode all of these defenses. So if the person monetized their use, it becomes harder to argue that. And, that makes um, sense. and then, you know, it's a question of facts. So if a particular brand or trademark belongs to someone else, then that someone else has a monopoly over the brand and trademark. So it becomes very hard to leverage one of these defenses. And they exist. Like in the UK, for example, we have, since InfoSec, we have parody. But to qualify for the defense of parody is not easy. You know, like, again, you have elements like commercial use that erodes the ability to use parody. You know, some project in the past have tried to claim parody when there is really nothing funny about it. It's just use of, of, a, of, a, of a brand within a piece of art. So it's hard. I would, I would say, you know, when you're dealing, for artists especially, I think taking such a risk is not really warranted. I think that, you know, I see, I see maybe where you're referring to, you know, and uh, with the whole value situation and all what's going on. But uh, well, that wasn't reads, but... what I was referring to, but ah, it no? does work. Ah, okay. So there's a couple, there's a couple yeah, people yeah, can yeah. connect to, but yeah, sorry, continue. So... <laughs> So like that one, for example, you know, is the performance art. And, you know, I spoke with, with artists at Relevance and I was surprised how excited artists were about this, you know, sort of revolution, cultural revolution that was taking place. But, you know, from a legal perspective, looks like a pretty much, you know, straight up infringement. Right, right, right. Look, remember that intellectual property and copyright and all of that, there is always an underlying policy aspect to it. And when you look, for example, now at artificial intelligence, it's the same, right? Because now we have this sort of debate on, is this something that we want to promote? Is it something that we want to encourage? Or is this something that we as a society want to take down and discourage and incentivize, you know? So IP really exists. You know, when you look at the policy arguments, and when I was at uni, full disclosure, I saw policy arguments like, ah, who cares about those next? You know, I need stuff for the exam. But now I've come to appreciate the importance of that because really the way that law develop, uh, develops and, you know, and, and expands and grows and, and changes really depends on, on us as a society, on what we deem as important and what we deem as not important. And just to give you an example, Photography, for example, when it first came out, it wasn't protected under copyright. It wasn't deemed worthy of being protected because people just said, you know, well, you take a camera, you take a snapshot of what already exists out there, you put no efforts into it. And, you know, the test under, uh, there has been a reform a bit under copyright law before there was a concept called sweat of the brow, meaning that there had to be some level of effort in you creating the artwork for you to get protection. But we decided to drop that because, you know, potentially I can create something that is extremely, uh, that contributes to, to our society and to the culture with minimal effort. Why shouldn't I get protection? So the reason I mentioned photography is that it took a long time before photography was recognized as a form of art and as a, as a form of expression that was deemed uh, and worthy of protection. And we're facing something similar now, I think, with AI. So it's going to be interesting to see how it develops further. And going back, you know, to using brands of existing, uh, you know, companies and conglomerates, is that something that we want to incentivize? I don't know. I re I'm not sure. You know, trademark, interestingly, is a the only form of right that can potentially be infinite. Because like copyright, at least in the UK, is life of the artist plus 70 years, save a certain form of work that have a, a little bit less protection. Patents is a monopoly that the patent holder has for 20 years. But when it comes to trademark, for as long as you use it, you can renew it every 10 years. Because imagine if you go and tell Nike, well, you know what? Your trademark has expired. And now me and you can start producing shoes, putting a Nike label on top. Oh my God, yeah. Right? <laughs> People would be waiting in the woodwork, exactly. ready to strike. Yeah, Exactly. Jesus. But if you look yeah. at 200 years from now, the more people register trademark and use trademark, the less marks will be available for other people to use. So will there be a relaxation when it comes to, you know, potentially use certain words in certain contexts or certain marks yeah. with, you know, for, for the purposes of creating art? It's, it's an interesting question, you know, and again, we will have to see how, how we move as a society. I didn't even think of that. Like what happens in a, the future society when like every single object in word and word compilation and combination is like trademarked and there's nothing left to 
create. And that's why there are protection mechanisms. <laughs> you know, like the trademark, we said you need to register it to, for it to exist. So the registration process also acts as a layer of protection to avoid taking words outside of the public domain. So, for example, if I want to sell computers and I try to register a trademark called computer, I'm probably not going to get it because, you know, everyone within that field that produces computers want to be able to use that that word. So for me to just come in and get a monopoly over it is crazy. So trademark tend to be very strong when the word that you use has nothing to do with what you produce or offer. Look at Apple, right? Apple, is there anything further away from technology products? But nowadays, when you say Apple within the tech context, everyone knows, you know, who you're referring to. A hundred percent. It's like, it's even like these terms, like from a while back, like I was listening to a podcast today and somebody was like, oh, when I say like go Xerox something like that is assumed, yes. like people just like take that as like, oh, go make a copy, like go. Yeah. But like really Xerox is a brand. Like sometimes these trademarks, these brands become like universally accepted as an action rather than a thing, which is crazy. It's crazy to me. Think about Google. Yeah. Google it. I, like it, you could be typing in somewhere else, yeah, yeah. but it just is like, just Google. It means like, just go look it up. Oh my God. Yeah. You raise an amazing point that. again. Like, like, and that's why there is something called dilution of trademark. So if, if a certain word becomes, and I think that happens to Yo-Yo, don't quote me on that, but I believe that that happened to Yo-Yo, you know, Yo-Yo was a brand, was not the actual object, but because everyone refers to it Ooh. as a Yo-Yo, I think they lost their trademark because if a word becomes adopted within the public domain, then you could lose your trademark, which is the reason why Google apparently, like rumor has it, you know, in uh, 10 years ago or so, started to be more protective when it came to like movies, for example, you know, because people started using Google uh, as a verb. Like you said, you know, oh, Google it or I'm Googling yeah, it. Yeah. And so the power of the, of the brand as recognizing the company as opposed to recognizing the action was starting to dilute. And so they run the risk of losing Google as a brand. Imagine that, like the power that Google has as a brand. Imagine, oh my God. imagine you know, so it's, a, so it's a very interesting. So the way that you manage trademark and brand is very interesting. And, you know, you have brands like Disney that are extremely aggressive or Mattel that I know is probably the most aggressive. And there is a reason behind it. Unfortunately, trademark is aggressive by design because you need to protect that reputation that you have with customers so that they know when that mark is used, the product service experience that is being offered is offered by the company that they know. So interesting. Okay. So I've got one more mm -hmm. question. That's kind of a light one. Um, and then we'll talk a little bit about your blog and then we'll wrap it up. But I wanted to say like, we have been talking a lot about how like the laws applied to digital and how that the, how regulation comes into the world of like crypto and NFTs, but I want to ask, like, as somebody who is in a serious relationship, who owns digital assets, like what wh when we start bringing like digital elements, digital assets into legal practices, like what how are NFTs and like crypto assets like your shit coins, <laughs> your doge coins? How are these like how are these seen and kind of handled in like a prenup? for example. <laughs> so, so the court in the UK recognized that a cryptographic asset, and that means crypto, shitcoin, as well as NFTs, you know, they're talking, they're still cryptographic assets, are a form of property. So they would be handled, I believe, you know, I'm, I'm not really writing wills, or I'm not involved, you know, I'm not a family lawyer. Uh, so <laughs> I don't exactly like, speak with a family lawyer, please. You know, there might be some rules that I'm not aware of, but because they're deemed as property, I suspect they would be treated as the rest of the properties that, you know, um, are owned by a person when it comes to, you know, wheels. Taxation might be different, but when it comes to wheels or transfer of property and estate, you know, I think they would just be treated as, as another form of property. So I understand that as like a marital asset, like if a purchase is made, like if I am married and I buy something for 0.01 ETH in 2023 and by 2043, it's worth like a bajillion dollars. I get that. What if my partner is an artist and he owns assets that he created in his wallet? Are those considered marital assets or is that considered part of you know his personal yeah. property because he made it and he owns it? I'm not sure to be honest with you. Like 
what what I know is that what, what I think I know is that uh, prenup I don't think are are enforced <laughs> in the UK. I don't know if maybe if you sign. Up- oh, that's good to know for me, Omri. That is <laughs> I good. I don't to- want to say something wrong. <laughs> I'm not telling him that. Our <laughs> uh, prenup. <laughs> oh my God! Google it. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Hopefully, I don't get a trademark yeah, um, crackdown yeah. from Google so it's, for it's this. It's automatically legally binding. Um, so, so. Oh, good but to I know. Think the, court, the court uses <laughs> it as an indication of what was the intention of the parties. Of the, of the parties to the marriage. So okay. I know the prenups are, you know, there are a few questions around them, but to be honest, I'm not sure. I can put in touch with a family lawyer if that's... <laughs> <laughs> because I think that, like, that is something that is not yet, like... It, the thing is that I'm thinking of in my head is, like, wh- and to kind of call back to my funny jokes, like, why I think the movie, like, Legally Blonde was so popular in, like, pop culture is, like, it disrupted this idea of, like, lawyers or, like, these, like, big old, like, fat guys that are, like, pushed in pencils and, like, you have old scanner machines and a, in a like, female receptionist at your desk in yeah. her, like, three-piece lady suit, like, and it disrupted that. And I think, like, in now today like we're saying like people like you who are so cool like law is changing like because the world's changing like and we have to see these things are not so black and white and i think that's where sometimes like legal action really fails is like that there's a textbook like approach and definition and argument to everything that says this is lawful or unlawful this is ethical or unethical this is how you do it this is how you don't do it but as things change in the world, like, do you think that, I guess I'm going to turn this into a question, like, is the law, like, can it even keep up with what we're doing? Like, even uh, before you answer that, like, like SPF is being charged with wire fraud, like wire fraud is a, uh, it was something that like came out like 80 years ago, like that's a regulation. And that was like a law that was enforced 80 years ago. And it's still the same, like, we don't have is it okay to call what he's mm-hmm. done wire fraud when like somebody that's like sitting in their basement can commit wire fraud just by like calling their neighbors and trying to sell them fake magazines or something like so the yeah. question is like how is it even possible or like what has to happen in order for the law to like catch up to where we are you know the law will always try to catch up to innovation because otherwise you know i don't think it's desirable to try and and forecast the type of problem that exists and create laws for it because what happened is you might inadvertently stifle innovation because if i make it more difficult for you to be able to release a product then that's not desirable you know from a society point of view i think what sbf i I don't really exactly i don't know exactly the difference between wireford i think that when it comes to um, insider trading, for example, but I don't think an insider trading would be relevant here. But again, I'm, I'm, that's not really my in the US, you know, the type of you know that I specialize in. I think that the problem is that sometimes, like you said, the law does not include certain type of instrument, or the regulation does not include certain type of instrument. So I think, like for example, insider trading requires securities, and if you know tokens are not securities or require regulated instruments under financial services, and if you don't have that, then Perhaps you failed the offense of market manipulation, but what it did was still fraudulent, apparently. You know, like we need to hear, you know, all evidence and understand exactly what happened. But if he did what people say he did, then that's fraud. And I think what's important is that he pays, you know, he is responsible for that. He's held responsible for that. Although now I understand maybe he's working together with the authorities. I'm not sure exactly what is going on there. After a bit, I stopped following that because there is, there is so much, you know, information going around and you never know exactly what to trust. So, but what I would say is that for regulation to be, so the more regulation exists, the less free we are as individuals. So I think that we need to be careful saying that there isn't enough regulation surrounding crypto because in reality, there is already a lot of regulation, but perhaps it's not suitable. So it's about adapting existing regulation, creating a framework that incentivizes innovation and at the same time protects consumers and, you know, discourages basically what we don't want to happen. So, for example, using of funds for uh, funding terrorist activity or, you know, money laundering and all of that. But at the same time, I think that is important for the law not to try and play a profit because you can get it really wrong. You know, I think 
10 years ago, I don't think people really realized that NFTs would be as big as today. And I think NFTs and digital collectibles are going to play a bigger role within our culture than, say, crypto assets. But a lot of the regulation that we have, and when I say crypto assets, sorry, cryptocurrencies, so, you know, fungible assets that we can trade. And I think that the regulation that we have today, at least in the UK, most of it that is dedicated to cryptographic assets was really dedicated to cryptocurrencies so fungible value that can be very very liquid you know high liquidity can be traded very quickly and it's not necessarily suitable for non-fungible tokens which are digital collectibles and i think that that's the problem you know like you want to adapt you want to make sure that the law doesn't stifle innovation without becoming reckless because i think it is the, the you know states want to encourage safety so also to promote adoption because how much bad news there is around of people getting scammed within crypto, people getting, you know, um, uh, rugged. But unfortunately, media tend to focus on that, right? Or on billions raised, and that's it. But nothing in between. And I think that what we've had now with NFTs in the past two two years, I would say mainly, was a cultural spring. Like, have artists ever been appreciated as much? in recent time as in the past two years like you know i think it's incredible i go to event and i meet artists from all different walks of life you know you have painters you have um, sound designer you have um, directors you have animators you have uh, people that create experiences brands all together there you know it's a thriving moment for the culture and i think it's really magical and i hope that regulation is able to facilitate that to incentivize the creation of more culture because i do think we're in a pivotal moment and especially with immersive technology being behind behind the doors i think you know we're about to take a leap uh, into the next stage of our digital journey because will we need screen will we need a, a mobile phone when i can have a hologram you know where can i where i can live in a, in a sort of a mixed reality uh, through argumented reality you know and be able to experience objects as if they were real be a, being able to own asset object digital object through nfts as if they were real you know think about pokemon for example you could easily replicate it once ar is out because you know at the beginning you asked what is web3 and i think web3 is the pinnacle of technological convergence ai uh, blockchain digital assets uh, immersive technologies coming all together to create experiences, to innovate the product and the service front. So going back to the Pokemon example, think about having an NFT with a Pikachu or Bulbasaur or whatever. And like, you know, you you can experience that as if it were real. And then thanks to AI, even if there are a hundred thousand copies of Pikachu's, each is distinct and original, being on the blockchain. Each develops differently thanks to AI. It will develop based on how you train that or based on the surrounding, based on the experiences it grows with. And for augmented reality, I get to experience it as if it were real. So I think that, and you know, that's just a very silly and minor example, but in, I think... No, it's fucking right, sick. I, I think I'm so excited <laughs> about that. that. If, if Pokemon, yeah, if Pokemon <laughs> takes that idea, we're going to, I will be expert witness for <laughs> okay, your case here because it. that is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I love Web3 is the pinnacle of the technological experience. Like, boom, mic drop. Like, <laughs> that is so perfectly put and amazing. I want to use that to just like plug your your blog that you just started. I can't wait for you, you to post more. Um, Omri, is su you're such a good writer. I love the way that you incorporate storytelling and narrative into your so blog posts is something that I, I try to do a lot as well, because I think it helps people frame things and put them into perspective. So let us know, let the listeners, um, I should have 10 by the end of this episode because it was so good. Let them know where to find you, where to find your blog, um, and what they can expect to hear from you in the new year. Thanks so much. Thanks, Carson. Uh, so the, I started writing this newsletter, like uh, Carson mentioned, it's called Not Legal Advice. It's on Beehive, but you can find it at notlegaladvice.xyz. Like, share, and subscribe. No, <laughs> so, so, but yeah, apart from that, uh, yes. just going to chat about, you know, kind of what we discussed today and um, the intersection, I'd say, between law and emerging technology. Uh, you know, next, next episode is going to be on AI because I wanted to understand it better, you know, in terms of what is the, really the problem, the different machine learning models that are being used, the kind of, 
ethical implications of it, you know, going back to policy argument, you know, do we want to encourage that or do we want to discourage that? So AR, like sort of Web3 generally, so emerging tech with some legal consideration and yeah, that's uh, probably the worst sales pitch ever. Well, (laughs) I'm no, (laughs) I can't wait. I can't wait for your next um, publishing. I'm going to stay on you. I hope that you put him out because I'll be like, when's the next blog post coming out? It's so good. As we have mentioned, and as the blog indicates, this entire episode is not legal advice. We were, we are just two friends and smart people talking (laughs) hypothetically. If this is like, it's like the um, intro of like law and order. It's like, if this, if this sounds like anybody, you know, it's not. (laughs) Like with with the signal. It might. Yeah, no, don't. So, okay, Omri, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I'm so glad we got to do this. It's so much fun. We'll have to bring you back and excited to see how how the world changes and evolves and glad to know that somebody as awesome as you is really at the forefront, I think, um, of, of being a part of this and, and being a part of the community, being a voice for the community. It means a lot to make yourself so accessible to people like me and like your followers and anybody else that wants to be um, in touch with you. Thanks so much, Carson. Thank you for having me. I really loved it. And, you know, you always say that at the end of podcast, but I really loved it. And you asked some amazing questions. So okay. I know you're joking on the followers and all of that, but I really mean that. So thank you so much for having me here. I appreciate thank that. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining. I'm Carson Daly. You can't go a week in crypto without Carson Daly. The Carson Daly Show is a production of Decential Media produced by Matt Bogart with music by Woody. Talk to you soon.